Now, church, there are always new places we can go with the gospel. And as we go, we can be optimistic about what God can do, even if as we go, we face resistance. Seeing the church just spring up in Antioch encourages us to keep sowing the seed of the gospel everywhere, wherever we are. Whether it's here or in Morocco or stationed in the military or going to visit friends this summer on vacation. Jesus' kingdom advanced into new territory because he was with them as they spoke about him. Look at verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It's just as he promised he would do in Matthew 28. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them what I've commanded, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. If our evangelistic vision is limited to this earth only, we will always see obstacles, excuses, and fears that keep us from going where Jesus is not known. But if heaven is in view and God who sits on the throne, who orchestrates and advances his kingdom, God's ability to save will be trusted in our hearts and then we'll be ready and eager to engage in gospel work. This opportunity for evangelism and even potentially church planning is one that I trust is going to continue to be in front of us as a church. Even if we aren't in the lead on some of those efforts... There are other partner churches around us, which we pray for this morning, and in other parts of the country and the world that we can and get to link arms with in this work. So as your elders, we are going to continue to pray and plan to adopt annual budgets that include prioritizing ministry that equips us to be able to go. And as God blesses us with people and resources we're going, to get look, we're going to get to look forward to increasingly finding the joy of giving so that God's kingdom might come. And when evangelism yields converts among us and new Christians form new churches or they come into ours, then that becomes a discipleship opportunity for us. Just like Barnabas saw for him. He heard about new Christians and he wanted to be there. He wanted to help them and encourage them and teach them because Jesus was on his heart. Barnabas knew that new Christians meant a need for teaching. So Christian, when you study and read your Bible and you keep up a steady diet of reading good Christian books with other Christians, know that you're not just investing in your own growth, but through that, the Lord is intending to equip you to help and to teach and to see others grow as well. I pray this excites and encourages you to see God's kingdom advancing, even in the earthly trial of persecution. This was not only an early church trend, but if you followed church history, you'll know that some of the greatest and most intense periods of persecution for the church worldwide have led to some of the most evident fruit of the gospel. How do we know that this will keep happening? Well, because God promises to bring a harvest from his word. Isaiah 55, 10 through 12 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven 
and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What a great start in our time this morning to see church growth from church persecution. Let's look secondly then at fearful forecasts becoming generous showers. Look at Acts chapter 11 verse 27. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So, the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So, Agabus foretells something that would create, I think, some sense of dread and fear. The prospect of a famine is coming. You know, every time the church pushes into new territory in the book of Acts, we see these special works of the Spirit happening. So, prophets arrive in Antioch, telling the future. I don't think this means we should always be on the lookout for people to tell us the future. But, I also think we should allow for the fact that God can do what he wants when he wants. And even if no one gets up in our church services and predicts what is coming tomorrow... God still knows and controls it all. Our not knowing what will be or our knowing what will be is never an occasion for fear. Or doesn't need to be at least. Because God holds the future and as we sang earlier, he holds us. The spirit of God is evidently working among these new Christians in Antioch. Just look at how they respond to the news that famine will threaten other Christians in another country. They don't just write it off. They don't callously conclude that's not our problem. They consider this is an opportunity to love with Jesus' love. To give as Jesus has given. To serve as Jesus has sacrificially served. God provided teachers from the Jerusalem church to meet Antioch's discipleship needs. And now God is providing resources from the Antioch church to meet Jerusalem's famine needs. God intends for our relationship that he brings us into as a family to be a place where we find security. Security among brothers and sisters in our own church and with other churches we're of like mind with. So what does this mean for you? Well, let me encourage you to let people know your needs. Are you hurting? Are you struggling? Let someone know. Are you in financial trouble and you don't know what to do? Talk to someone. Has something happened that you didn't expect and you don't know what to do? There are family members here who would love to help you. Just make your needs known. I know that's scary. But the love of Christ compels us to love one another. 
And we can trust that as we open our needs, we will also be able to openly see God working through that. One of the continuing testimonies to the love of Christ alive in his people is how the global church gives so charitably. How she, more than any other organization, rallies when natural disasters strike. How she sacrifices out of her plenty in order to support those who lack through nonprofits and charitable organizations and free giving. The generosity of Antioch helps us as a church know what opportunities to be looking for. How will we know, Warnell Road, when God is tapping us to meet needs beyond us? I'm not saying it will always be this way, but let me give you a few things to help us as we begin to discern that. I think one is that we should keep building partnerships with other churches in ministry. That is going to link us in and help us to know ways that we can give and serve. If we build ourselves on an island of isolation, surrounding ourselves with a moat of our own principles and ideas and fail to see gospel opportunities with other churches, then we're going to be restricted from the joy of partnering in God's work. This is another reason to keep forming these bonds across our city and our world. We can partner with ministries like Reaching and Teaching to send teachers from us and receive teachers as well. We can join associations that seek to send out missionaries and do evangelism to send help and be helped in return. Part of what you free me up to do by paying my salary and giving me ample time and freedom to work is to find and foster these types of things among other churches, which I am Seeking to do often, even in the city. God takes up care of his people through his people. And we should ask that the spirit helps make us aware of the things he wants us to respond to. I've watched many of you live your lives that way. It's been such a helpful example to our church. You're ready to give time when it's needed. You're ready to give your energy. You're ready to give your money. You're ready to give your expertise and your effort to help people when they need it. Praise God for that. May our whole church have the same attitude. Pray that the spirit would lead us in this. I've been reading Charles Spurgeon's autobiography where he tells the story of a coal mine explosion in another part of England when he was the pastor of the probably the largest church in London at the time. The Sunday morning after it happened, I I think it was that soon, Spurgeon's church took up an offering. And and if you had read the biography up to this point, you would have known that the church had just engaged in a massive capital campaign to build a new church called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And Spurgeon goes around and asks for money and people give and the, the place is built. So you have all that in the background. But the Sunday morning after this coal mine explosion happens... Spurgeon's church takes up an offering which Spurgeon recounted ended up being the largest single collection they ever recorded for anything. They gave more than for their own building. As the Lord leads us, we may very well, on a Sunday morning, pass the plate from time to time, just like they did, so that we might answer the call to generously give to help others.
And remember, as we do that and engage in that, we are never going to be the full security net for any other church or for our own. The disciples in verse 29 were free to consider what each could do according to their own ability. In giving to meet needs, God is able to kind of pull his people like a thousand little streams from his kingdom to flow to the dry desert where it's needed most. God can do that. We can trust him with it. Is giving our responsibility? Yes. But more than that, it is our opportunity to be involved in need meeting, hungry mouth feeding, love of God to people. He doesn't have to do it that way. We know that God clothes the lilies of the field. He feeds the sparrows and the lions, the ones we've never even seen. But in order that we might be enfolded in the joyful life of God that he is giving for the good of others, he invites us in to take part in it. When God brings you into his kingdom, even trials, when you feel great need, become opportunities to see him work. Just like the famine in Jerusalem. Where believers receive gifts from Antioch. It's like the hymn. God moves in a mysterious way, says. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Christians have seen and received the riches of God in Christ Jesus. And if such an inheritance could flow from the cross of all places... We should expect the same of all lesser trials. So there's a harvest of souls in trial and generous blessing in need. What else can God purpose and do in earthly trials? Third, prison cells are where deliverance begins. Look at chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. And from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, 
in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. I think one of the ways that this whole passage serves us in our Christian walk is to understand as Peter goes into prison and awaits potential execution, he's mapping right on with Jesus' story. In fact, it's so close that the grandson of Herod who tried and condemned Jesus to death is now the one trying and about to condemn Peter to death. Your life will take the path of Christ's. We should expect it. James and Peter are pillars in the fledgling church that is starting. They are apostles and significant figures for the work going on in Jerusalem. In a short time, Herod, the ruler of the area, has flexed his power and executed James and imprisoned Peter. Now, Peter is no stranger to prison in Acts. This is, in fact, the third time he's been arrested. And the last two times he escaped with God's help. I think Herod must know this. And so he doubles down on Peter's security. Around the clock watch, four guards always dedicated to Peter. The situation must have seemed dire, ominous. Herod playing political games, understanding he got points with the Jews for killing James. And it's safe to assume that that's the direction he's headed with Peter as well. Now above all this is God reigning who is always purposeful in where he sends us. If God sent Jesus to death for our salvation, he may very well have important reasons for sending us down a similar path. We can often wrongly think that when we're at the end of ourselves and our abilities, we are at the end of hope. But having come to that place myself, I can honestly say, that that place is often where we see the dawning of God's deliverance. Desperation is the dark night upon which the light of Christ's deliverance breaks. And Peter seems to know this. Two chains, guards everywhere, James's execution, and what is Peter doing? Sleeping. I imagine those two previous rounds in jail taught Peter how to rest and wait on the Lord. So the next time your world turns upside down and you're tempted to fear and anxiety, turn to Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Peter didn't need to stay up and fret. 
he could sleep because the Lord was watching over him. And God sends an angel to deliver him. This passage makes it abundantly clear that when deliverance happens, it is all God. And God is so capable of deliverance that he didn't even come himself. He sends an angel. The least of heaven's servants are greater than the most powerful of earth's kings. When Herod mustered a small army against the church in Jerusalem, God responded by sending one heavenly warrior deliverer. So, as the world attempts to wrest control from God, the church lines up on our knees like the church in Acts does and prays. That's what the disciples were doing in verse 12 while Peter was in jail. And look, even as they were potentially praying for his release, they're clearly surprised when he shows up on their doorstep. And this is such a comfort to those of us who find that our prayers are weak in faith. Answers to prayers have nothing to do with our ability to know what God will do and so ask him to do it first. Prayers connect us as weak askers to the one who is all-powerful and able to give. God will often take the opportunity to blow our minds with his powerful answers to our weak prayers. Prayer is a posture of simply looking to mighty Jesus. That's where he wants our eyes so that we see that it is him when the answer comes. In prayer, we voice that Christ would come and that God our Father would be the place that we go through Jesus. That he would be the only place we would go and find rest. In prayer, we confess we cannot turn to our power because we have none. We won't resort to vengeance and retribution because Jesus, we know, told us, lay down your sword. So when everyone else around us is reaching and grasping for instruments of control to overcome trials, let's open our hands and bow our heads to speak to the one who controls all things. How did the angel manage to unlock the chains, open the doors, evade the guards? Have fun imagining all the ways he might have done that. Invisibility? Maybe. Bending reality, causing deep sleep. Regardless, can't you see how who God is should be the starting point of faith in any and all our trials? Can God work even in prison? Of course he can. Think about who he is. He made iron and steel. He made the guards. He decided by choice, not by constraint in himself, to make the world run by physical laws. But that does not mean for a second that he is bound to them. What can't he do? He's capable of prison deliverance and so much more. All salvation history demonstrates that God relishes the opportunity to rescue us. The exodus, the exiles, the empty tomb. And still one we're still waiting to happen. When in resurrection he returns to release us in all creation from our bonds.
Peter's imprisonment and rescue is a very helpful picture for you if you're here today and you're not a Christian. Until Christ frees you, you will remain in the prison cell of your sin, as we all were at one time. You cannot break those chains. You cannot open that door. You cannot stand up on your own faith or your power. You must have the Spirit of God to come on you as a light in your pitch black darkness and give you freedom. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came and lived perfectly in your place and died as a sacrifice on the cross for your sins. This is why he took the punishment of God's wrath that was aimed at you and me and bore it on himself. So that when it was all over, he could snap the cords of death that choke you. He could break up the prison of sin that holds you. All you must do is recognize that your sin is your prison. And ask Christ to come and break you free. If there's anyone here locked in addiction, the God of angels can rescue you. Christian, trials may seem like prison sometimes. You might feel right now that you're stuck. Maybe the bonds of your circumstances feel like shackles. But let me lovingly remind you, if you are in Christ, your eternal bondage is over. You are living right now in the liberty that Christ brings. Trials are not sent to us to be pits of hopeless despair, but a perfectly laid path to God. So let's not waste the opportunity of our earthly trials. Leave to our God to order them according to his goodwill. Be still in them. The Lord is on your side. Bear patiently crosses of grief and pain. Leave to God to order and provide. Be still and know that your best and your heavenly friend through these thorny ways will lead to your joyful end. There's one final way we see God's kingdom advancing and heavenly purposes succeeding even in earthly trials. And that's the fourth one. Enemy kings and their dusty ends. Look at verse 20 of chapter 12. Now Herod was angry with the people of, Tyre, people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne... And delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod misses the opportunity to learn humility from Peter's rescue. God was gracious to Herod to show him his power, but Herod ignores the lesson to his own harm. There's a lesson for us in that. 
Don't pass on the gift of humility because you only want what leads to your own glory. Herod is all about himself. His glory, his power, his kingdom. And the laughable thing about this whole scene is that he's not even all that powerful. In terms of the Roman Empire at large, he, he certainly is not Caesar. And he's in charge of what Rome considered a very insignificant region. That's also a help to our humility. There's always someone higher than you. Doesn't matter how high you climb. Herod is a cruel king. He uses the hurt of others to advance his own interest. The people he ruled over were hungry and he wanted to rub it in their faces in petty contempt. A stark contrast to the kind of king Jesus is who will even have his own body to be broken in order to be the bread of life to starving sinners. So Herod, on this particular day, collects his kingly things, robes, throne, scepter maybe, authoritative words. Readying himself for his own glorification, he practices his speech not knowing he is rehearsing his last words. He dreams of politically playing the game to gain a higher throne in Rome, but doesn't stop to think that the throne he has is on loan from God. In bitter irony, the voice of God was not audibly heard that day, certainly not from Herod's mouth as the people would flatter him, but God's judgment nonetheless thunders on Herod as a glory thief. An oppressive shepherd, a treasonous underruler who failed to acknowledge the king of kings. Luke tells us what all the pomp and circumstance finally amounted to nothing. And Herod, in all his so called glory, ends as compost in the ground. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 20. All go to one place, all are from the dust. And to dust all return. Once again, the eternal word of God outlives yet another challenger. I love how Luke ends this section. Herod's breath evaporates along with his body in the ground. But the word of God increased and multiplied. If you want to give your life to glory, make sure it's God's and no one else's. Psalm 102 verse 25. Of old, the the Lord laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands. They will perish, but he will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. He will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But God is the same and his years have no end. In case you didn't know, it's almost presidency season again. Presidential elections are knocking at the door. Maybe you fret at presidential elections. Maybe you fear how the courts will change our laws or other future concerns often plague you. I want to give us all a helpful exercise. Kids, exercise for you and for all of us. Look at your hands. Look at your hands. See the skin? That's the same skin, did you know, that covers presidents' bodies 
and judges and even powerful dictators. You know what that skin will become? Theirs and ours? Dust. You know why? Because God is the creator and judge of all. The maker of eternal laws that don't get changed. The one who has always and will always preside over all humankind. You might have, like me, smelled a really bad smell a couple days ago. As a pile of trash caught fire at a recycling plant in Kansas City. You could literally smell it across the city. If, in case you didn't get to smell the wonderful smell. I thought it was a helpful reminder of our mortality. You know, somewhere in Kansas City, yesterday's pride possessions are today in a heap burning. It's a bad investment to spend our earthly energies amassing wealth and our pursuits on things that distract us from seeing God's heavenly purposes. If you didn't like my skin exercise, here's another one. Next time you hold the dollar bill, realize that in a coming age, that paper will only be useful as fuel for a trash heap. So what kind of opportunity is open for our lives as Christians? Peaceful and quiet living, for one. The opportunity to anticipate heaven to keep advancing on earth around us. Earth is not eternal. One day heaven will invade earth. And everything God has been doing there will reveal everything happening here. Including our trials. Was preparing for his forever kingdom. So let me finish. This section in Acts encourages church, encourages us as a church that God's heavenly kingdom moves through earthly trials toward a glorious end. At the end, there will be a church gathered in heaven full of people from an earthly harvest. No famines of any sort and we'll share in Christ's abundance together. Persecution will end. Freedom will be fully enjoyed. It will be a place where Christ sits on the throne and only him. And he will speak words of goodness and truth. And we will respond in love and praise and worship. And when he speaks and orates from his throne, we will shout the voice of the one who is God. But for us and our, for, our, for our salvation became a man. His is the kingdom and power and glory forever. And his purposes will stand. What an opportunity we have. To be part of his purposes to bring heaven to earth. Even through our trials. Let's pray. Father, by your word and your spirit, would you cause your word and acts to encourage our hearts, to see you at work, even through our trials. Lord, we pray especially for your grace and kindness to the person or people in this room who cannot see past their trials right now. 
God, hold them as we prayed earlier and enable them to see that you control all things. And even through thorny ways, you lead us to a joyful end. Lord, as a church, we pray that we would be people eager to see you working. We would be expectant for it. And Lord, we pray that on earth as it is in heaven, your will would be done. And your kingdom would come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to finish our time by thinking about the time we're with the Lord in heaven. Let's stand and sing, the sands of time are sinking.